0: Our guest today is Felix Cheng, professor of law at the University of Cincinnati. We'll be discussing his article, Ethnically Segmented Markets. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Felix, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Andrew. I'm a fan of the podcast, and I'm really flattered to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. And I wondered if, before we start talking about some of the meat of your paper, if you might be able to share some of your motivation for this research, and what are some of the research questions that you sought out to answer in this paper? Sure. The research question that I
1: wanted to answer in ethnically segmented markets was pretty simple. Uh, Why are so many ethnic beauty supply stores owned and operated by Korean Americans, even though the customers are mostly African Americans? Most African American women know that the hair products market, and by hair products I'm focusing mainly on the wigs and hair extensions market, the hair products market is dominated by Korean Americans. This is the source of constant ire between the two communities, and it's also been the subject of movies and documentaries, from Chris Rock's Good Hair to the film adaptation of Nicola Yoon's novel. The sun is also a star. Let me backtrack to some of the motivations for this paper. I usually don't think it's particularly important how we get into a line of research, but for this project, I wanted to mention that when I was in high school. My parents ran a convenience store in this scrabble urban neighborhood of Cincinnati. In 1992, Rodney King was beaten, and Latasha Harlins was killed, and the LA riots broke out. At the time, my city, Cincinnati, didn't have all that many Asians, and though I was from Taiwan, I identified with the Korean-American shopkeepers whose businesses were vandalized. So now, these many years later, taking a look at the scholarship on ethnic entrepreneurs, I see that a lot was written in the 1990s when we were really trying to make sense of really big picture questions. So interracial conflict in the US, interethnic conflict with the fall of the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc, and what happens when ethnic or racial lines coincide with everyday commercial transactions. I think there are a lot of questions that we haven't answered
0: and a lot of the literature should be updated. Could you introduce us to maybe the core concept of this paper, which is the concept of ethnically segmented and misaligned markets, or ESMs? You discuss in your introductory remarks the Korean vendors of African-American hair products. Are there any other case examples that we might want to be thinking about in terms of this concept? And maybe is there any more that we might want to know about the key case study that you offer in the paper? Sure, Andrew. So I'm looking at a particular kind of ethnically
1: segmented market. I think in general, we know what segmented markets are. There are markets that are divided along the distinct preferences of either consumers or producers. Markets can divide naturally, maybe as a result of consumer processes or preferences. And markets can divide artificially as well, maybe as a result of coordination to boost and to maintain market power. One of the classic cases from antitrusts, one that's probably dear to the hearts of all law students, is where you have a bar review course provider that surrenders the Georgia market to another provider in exchange for a covenant not to compete outside the state. So in this way, each bar review course providers monopolized a portion of the national market. Now in ethnically segmented markets, that segmentation happens along the preferences of ethnically homogenous consumers or producers. Some examples include, for instance, ethnic food products. They happen to be consumed by a particular ethnic group. You can have ethnic beauty products. Restrictive covenants, for instance, where white homeowners exclude non-white purchasers, and therefore you've segmented a city's housing stock, and you can artificially inflate home values in white neighborhoods. You can also have racially exclusive labor unions And that's where labor unions will exclude non-white members so as to inflate union pay. Now, the concept that I'm particularly interested in is a market where consumers are drawn from one ethnic group and producers are drawn from another. So each end of the market at the consumer end and at the producer end is going to be both ethnically homogenous, but also ethnically misaligned. As far as I can tell, when I canvass literature in law, economics, and sociology, these markets don't have a name, so I just call them ethnically segmented and misaligned markets. In the U.S., one of the clearest examples is the market for wigs and hair extensions, used by African Americans but sold by Korean American retailers. In my paper, I focus on that subset of misaligned markets where both producers and consumers are people of color, or if you look elsewhere in the world, they might be ethnic minorities. Now, I'm particularly interested in these types of markets, and that's because, uh, at least until the rise of internet retailers, a great deal of commercial transactions for a community of color tended to be with another community of color. For consumers, this might be because traditional producers aren't found in, say, a red-lined, ethnically segregated neighborhood. Unless you've got gentrification, for instance, these neighborhoods may lack grocery stores. That's why there are food deserts. So for producers, the producers in these markets tend to be small businesses run by immigrants. And they might, for glass ceiling or other reasons, be shut out from and not be able to break into corporate America or more established enterprises. Going back to the example of my family's convenience store, my parents had bought the business from a Palestinian family, and when we left Cincinnati, they sold it to another Palestinian family. So I know that's anecdotal, but there's been a lot of ethnographic literature on greengrocers and other businesses located in urban neighborhoods and operated by Korean Americans. So these are the more established examples. What's presumed in my framework is that consumers and producers in these markets are both, again, ethnically homogenous and also ethnically misaligned. So to address some other commonly invoked examples, for instance, Chinese restaurants wouldn't work. It would not fit into my framework. While producers are likely to be Chinese, the consumers aren't going to be ethnically homogenous, unless maybe you've tightly drawn a relevant geographic market around, say, an ethnically homogenous neighborhood. When you add the additional caveat for what I'm focusing on, that producers and consumers both be communities of color, we've limited this phenomenon to even a smaller subset of examples. A lot of the literature here comes from sociology, where there was some classic work on what's called middlemen minorities. So these are groups who mediate between dominant and subordinate economic groups in some sort of a society. Usually, middlemen minorities were thought to be sojourners, so they would travel from one market to the next. The communities that come to mind as classic middlemen minorities are Chinese, Jewish, Indian, and in West Africa, you have Lebanese. So, these merchants who are found all over the world. But the thing is, and what I focus on the paper, is that if we limit this phenomenon to markets where consumers are subordinate groups then the examples you have are fewer because um, you just don't have that many examples and you struggle to come up with one. The fact that they endure, for instance, the African-American hair products market makes it all the more peculiar, I think. The only other example that I've come across in my research and in my travels is that I do know that across Southeast Europe, where I spent quite a bit of time, there are pockets of Chinese merchants who often sell to and interact with Romani minorities, for instance. But again, the
0: examples are very few because this really is not a phenomenon that should endure. How might ESMs confound our existing notions of market power and competition and maybe cut against the grain in terms of economic theory and antitrust doctrine? I think there's a lot here. Let me just
1: begin by saying that I think ethnically segmented and misaligned markets can be told as an antitrust story. And the reason is that many African Americans will frame their relationship with Korean American retailers in competition and anti-competitive terms. So oftentimes, for instance, it'll be asserted that Korean American firms exert a monopoly over, or maybe they've monopolized the black beauty supply stores market. But the thing is that monopoly and monopolization have really specific meanings that demand careful market power analysis and antitrust. And working through these steps, I think, infuses literature on these buyer-seller transactions and, accordingly, these inter-ethnic interactions with a lot more precision. So, some examples, we can begin with cartels and horizontal coordination. There are informal assessments that put the number of ethnic beauty supply stores in the U.S. at between 9,000 and 10,000. And these informal assessments also say that about 80 to 85% of them are going to be owned and operated by Korean-Americans. Now, the literature on cartels is usually focused on a small number of really large producers. And this literature tends to postulate that the greater the number of cartel members, the harder it is to maintain the cartel because each member has an incentive to cheat. That is, they'll deviate from cartel pricing by underpricing and therefore gaining greater market share. The endurance of Korean-American retailers in this market, so this is the wig and extensions market, it really suggests that coordination among a multitude of small firms in ethnically segmented and misaligned markets is possible. Korean-Americans and Koreans really came to dominate this market starting in the 1960s because of some structural tailwinds. As it was industrializing, South Korea became a major manufacturer and exporter of wigs, and also during this time, that is beginning in the 1960s, the consumer demand for wigs really exploded. So that from 1960 to 1969, this demand grew 50 fold in the United States. These are all structural reasons for why Koreans and Korean Americans came to dominate the market for wigs and hair extensions. But I also think that there's coordination as well that helped Korean American manufacturers and wholesalers and retailers maintain their dominance. If we go back to 1975, the U.S. Department of Justice sued uh, an organization called the Korean Hair Goods Association of America. DOJ sued them for conspiring to regulate the price and resale conditions of imported wigs, and also for excluding wig importers and distributors from the resale market. This was a New York organization whose members imported wigs and hair products from Korea for wholesale and retail in the United States. And that DOJ action was brought under Section 1 of the Sherman Act. But the thing is that the endurance of the Korean American manufacturers and exporters and retailers in this market through the decades, even though they negotiated a consent decree, that endurance suggests to me that this dominant share has been remarkably stable. Now, if you move on to exclusion and vertical integration, monopolization, and other issues that we traditionally understand under the framework of Section 2 of the Sherman Act, it turns out that Korean-American retailers deal almost exclusively with Korean and Korean-American wholesalers. The reverse is true, so that Korean and Korean-American wholesalers tend to deal almost exclusively with Korean-American retailers. What's really interesting is how it dovetails with the work of sociologists. So, this is consistent with some of the findings of sociologists from the mid-1980s. They found that ethnic entrepreneurs, and by this I mean in particular Cuban-American entrepreneurs, which was where this research really grew out of, these sociologists found that ethnic entrepreneurs tend to pool their resources within co-ethnic communities. So, what does that mean? Examples would be that wholesalers are going to be more likely to extend credit or to offer installment payments, or to sell at lower prices if the counterparty is a co-ethnic retailer. And that's really important when we're talking about these sorts of small businesses, which tend to be really thinly capitalized. But while a vertically integrated wig and hair extensions market, it keeps wealth from flowing out of the Korean American community, it can also exclude participation by African American competitors. Very few African American suppliers of wigs and hair products exist, and they've been unable to procure hair products from Korean American distributors. African American manufacturers of hair products often will face difficulty in convincing Korean American retailers to carry their products. I think some of this can be attributed partially to language barriers. For instance, product catalogs and in every industry magazine, they tend to be published only in the Korean language. But there are concrete examples of Koreans and Korean-American wholesalers banding together in the past to shut out competitors. And there, it goes well beyond the passive exclusion of just sharing a common language. The complication is that as a doctrinal matter, if you're condemning exclusionary practices, you generally need a finding of market power as a very first step. So market power is usually measured at the firm level can you really say that an ethnic group has market power? So more concretely, even if Korean Americans really do control like 85% of this market, we're talking about maybe 10,000 discrete businesses, all of which compete intensely against one another. Now in the paper, I talk about new ways of thinking about market power when we're dealing with these markets. Maybe for instance, rather than measuring concentration at the firm level, maybe we can think about retailer diversity in an industry. I do think that there's value in talking about market power in traditional terms under antitrust. So that would be the market definition, market share paradigm. And I think it's because the very act of defining a market, defining a relevant product market, forces us to contend with some really uncomfortable realities. So more concretely, In thinking through demand elasticity, we have to recognize that among the many reasons why demand is so inelastic in these markets, one of the many reasons is because of hair discrimination. So hair discrimination features prominently. In many states, there's no legal recourse for African Americans who are treated adversely in the workplace for the way they wear their hair. But overall, I think that this phenomenon is really interesting the endurance of Korean American firms is peculiar because it suggests that collusive and exclusionary schemes may be much more stable than antitrust theory holds. Now, this is kind of consistent with the axiom that we have from sociology that an ethnic group can withdraw into itself, strengthen the co-ethnic bonds when threatened by exogenous forces. And here, the exogenous forces might be uh, the fact that all of your consumers are both ethically homogenous, but also ethically distinct from the producers. But I think that a sort of related point is that a major contribution of this work is this simple discovery that in-group producers can coordinate against and exclude out-group competitors by utilizing ethnic bonds. Even if we're talking about a group of ethnically homogenous, but really small, numerous, and discrete producers, that is firms numbering from, say, 9,000 to 10,000 across the U.S.
0: How do you think we should be thinking about ESMs in terms of racial equity and interracial and interethnic relations and relationships? I think that this
1: is one of the more difficult aspects of this research, and it's difficult because we've got these ethically distinct communities, and in particular, because I'm looking at ethically segmented and misaligned markets where both producers and consumers are people of color, you're really depending on how you want to weigh the antitrust laws, and you're really privileging one group over another. And it's really difficult to decide what group to prioritize. And I think that it is a general matter, we have a lot of conversations today about antitrust, and maybe antitrust isn't the right place to do racial equity in this particular circumstance. But there's a lot to think about. So one thing to think about is that in terms of racial relations, we should be mindful that racial formation is this really dynamic process. So, taking an antitrust lens can kind of obscure the dynamic process of racial formation that really underpins these two communities being perceived as ethnically homogenous. It very well may be that over the generation, Korean American producers, say the second or third generation storefront operator of an ethnic beauty supply store, no longer feels the same sort of kinship affinity with other Korean Americans that the first generation immigrants might feel. It may be, for instance, that talking about at least at the producer side talking about this as a sort of immigrant entrepreneurial community really obscures the fact that a lot of the producers are they're here than the u s they're American citizens, they may be people of color, but there aren 't really immigrant entrepreneurs in the traditional sense or the traditional understanding of both middleman minorities and ethnic entrepreneurs because that literature in sociology was really derived from immigrant entrepreneurs and really premised upon the understanding of middlemen minorities as a perpetually sojourner or itinerant group. And that's no longer the case here. It's also the fact that we should not say that the racial homogeneity aspect of what I'm looking at, at either the consumer end or the producer end, should not necessarily be taken as given because, again, this process of racial formation and identification is constantly changing and uh, alliances will change, and identity will change for a number of political, economic, power, and sociological reasons. So, this is really a dynamic process. That's something to really keep in mind. Uh, Another thing to keep in mind that I think is particularly interesting for antitrust purposes is that the progressives among us might say the following. That is, think about the disruption that we might see in this market. So some of the disruptors that are beginning to come onto the scene, you do have a couple of African American owned suppliers who are really beginning to make inroads and they're beginning to make traction into the market. And they're beginning to capture greater and greater market share, even though I think it's still kind of a really small market share that they're capturing. But the reason why they're able to thrive, and here in particular, I'm thinking of, say, the firms Maven and Indique, and in particular, Maven more prominently. The reason why they're able to thrive is because they're able to circumvent Korean Suppliers and Korean manufacturers. With the advent of internet wholesaling, you can procure supplies very easily from China. And so a lot of the hair supplies are actually coming from China. And so if you, as an African American retailer, can get product directly from China and bypass Korean and Korean American uh, suppliers altogether, you don't have to worry about exclusion so much. Well, what happens then if you wind up with one really large supplier that might be a hundred percent owned by and operated by African Americans, but it ends up being, say, a dominant platform in the way that, say, Amazon does. And that strikes me as particularly interesting because the progressives among us will say, what well, we should really value are small businesses. You know, the longstanding criticisms to Amazon is how they squelch small businesses. And so If you're progressive on antitrust terms, you might favor the discrete small businesses over the one really large giant retailer. And again, here I'm assuming that eventually one of these African American owned and operated suppliers is really going to capture market share and become dominant in the way of, say, a disruptive platform. Now, the challenge here is that I think from the consumer end, this being a source of constant ire, the fact that African-American consumers cannot find African-American retailers of wigs and hair products, it's been constantly the source of irritation. And so I think many consumers will say, I would rather buy from the black-owned beauty supplier. Now, what if in the end, the type of market you're looking at is where the black-owned beauty supplier is one of these you know, mavens or indiques that really comes to capture market share? And they're the ones who are pitted against the traditional brick-and-mortar operators that are run by Korean Americans that really are small businesses. There, which way do the antitrust preferences cut? Which way do consumer preferences for ethnic and racial solidarity cut? I think that that's perhaps one of the most interesting intersections of antitrust and also
0: racial identity. Felix, what key takeaways or open questions from this paper, from this conversation, would you like our listeners to be thinking about? Let me classify
1: the key takeaways. I think one of them is going to be empirical. That is, further work will need to be done, tallying beauty supply stores within a relevant geographic market to really figure out in traditional market definition, market share terms, whether there is... Market power, if we presume that there is going to be a way of assessing market power to count all Korean American suppliers as one sort of homogenous unit. So that's one empirical question that I think is an open question for further exploration. There are theoretical questions as well. Specifically, is there a theory of market power that looks at the market not at a firm level, but at the ethnic group level? to my mind, there's not one that really exists. In previously workshopping this paper at an antitrust workshop, Eleanor Fox and Sean Sullivan had mentioned that you might be able to think about this as a sort of a competitive process question. So that might be a, another theoretical framework to approach ethically segmented and misaligned markets. There's a doctrinal question as well that th- remains open. That is, should antitrust add a theory of harm to include some sort of information exchange or facilitating practice that would cover producer behavior in, say, the hair products markets? That I don't know. Does transacting only in Korean language and across Korean language publications, does that sound in antitrust to constitute some sort of a facilitating practice for parallel conduct? And I think one of the last open questions is, is really more probably institutional and historical. And that is, I hope this begins the conversation to think more about ethnicity and race and antitrust. So this is going to include confronting some deeply problematic invocations in antitrust to Jeffersonian vision of small businesses or Teddy Roosevelt's approach to trust busting. Because I think you can't mention simultaneously the legacies of Jefferson and Roosevelt without talking also about the legacies of slavery and empire that these two men embody. These are some of the open questions that I hope to think about further. And the key takeaway is that, again, there are some really interesting markets where you find that producers are ethnically homogenous and consumers are ethnically homogenous, but they don't belong to the same ethnicity. So these are the ethnically homogenous and
0: ethnically segmented and also ethnically misaligned market that I'm looking at. Our guest today has been Felix Cheng, professor of law at the University of Cincinnati. We've discussed his article, Ethnically Segmented Markets. I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for today's episode. Felix, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks again for having me, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.